once we were dead, separated from God. But scripture describes a great mystery that moves us from death to life. A union between the created and the divine. United with Christ, we have an inheritance. We are redeemed and we are restored from our brokenness. But how do we experience this great mystery? How do we get from life as we know it to union with the Son of God? And what does it mean to be found in Christ? Well, hello again. I forgot to introduce myself last time. So my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here. And as you just saw in that video, we are continuing a series in Ephesians today. So I'd like to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have one, grab one of the blue ones. We'll be on page 567. Part of the reason that I ask you to grab your Bibles is because we believe strongly here in expository preaching, which means what we do is we open God's Word, we read it, and then we talk about what it means for our lives. So part of what the implication for that is, is we've been studying in, in the class, Sunday school class, I'm teaching what scripture does in our lives. And one of the things scripture does is it illuminates God's will for us in Christ Jesus. We're going to be looking at what God's will for us is today in this passage in Ephesians, but it begins by, by painting this picture of imitation. And as I was growing up, I was told and taught that imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. And I was reminded of that when my sisters would be imitating me in an annoying way. And when I was growing up, that imitation absolutely drove me nuts. And most of the time it was in order to antagonize or bother me or try to, to make fun of me in some way. But now I see imitation a little bit differently because now I have kids. And there's equal parts of it, one that is, is adorable and a second part that is terrifying. But then the other thing that I see my kids doing is, is starting to imitate the people that they spend time with. And some of what comes along with, with this imitation is they start to compare themselves to all the other kids that they're hanging around with. So even my, my son's Halloween costume this year, he goes, well, now I can look like my neighbor. And the other funny part about this that I've learned is according to my kids, every single one of our friends or people that they spend time with have better toys than we do. Well, in our age, we see imitation taking place on a much bigger scale all the time. From FOMO, which stands for fear of missing out in social media stuff, to trying to keep up with an unnamed family in California, to uh, I, I was reading recently in some philosophy journals that, that high school girls are developing nervous tics in response to watching too many TikTok videos. So what you take in matters greatly for how you end up living your life. Now, as I was growing up, one of the, the passages that my parents often uh, preached to me was 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, bad company ruins good morals. But the reverse of that can also be true. Good company will enforce and solidify good morals. So somewhat we need to ask is who or what are you spending time with? Because you end up often looking like or imitating the people or person that you spend time with. In fact, one of the questions that I have started asking uh, potential pastoral candidates is who is your hero in pastoral ministry? Who is it that you are trying to imitate? Who are you trying to be like? What is the target that you are aiming at in your pastoral walk? Well, I hope by now you have Ephesians 5. If you do, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1, hear the Word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. As you're seated, I invite you to pray with me once again. Heavenly Father, we pray that you, you would make your word a swift word that passes from our ears to our hearts, and comes out from our hearts to our lips in the midst of our conversations. And that is, the rain doesn't return empty, neither will your word, but it will accomplish the task that you have given it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we've seen uh, up until this point, Paul is regularly walking through this idea of walking. And today we're going to see what it looks like for us to be walking in Christ. He begins emphasizing this need for us to walk in love. And once again, if you look at the, at the opening verse here, he continues building the argument that he has built up until this point. Therefore, and again, whenever there's a therefore, ask what is it therefore? So last week, what, what Micah preached on was the specific instructions of us needing to put some things off and other things that we're supposed to put on. As he reminded us, it's, it's not enough just to remove these sinful tendencies in your life. If you remove them, you have to replace it with the right thing. Otherwise, it's going to remain broken. And remember the last verse that, that Micah preached on last week, chapter 4, uh, verse, what is it, 29? 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What that is doing is setting us up for Christ to serve as the model for the rest of us as to what forgiveness, putting it on, looks like. But then he takes it a step further in today's text and goes on, therefore, be imitators Copy God. Now, whether someone or whether your kids want to admit it or not, and I think a lot of it depends on how old your kids are, children in some form or fashion imitate their parents. And remember, as I said earlier, there's good and there's bad things about that, isn't there? Like there are some cases where I see my kids doing something that I do and I'm super excited about it. Like the first time I saw Calvin shoot a basketball, I was super excited. But then there are other times where I see my kids doing something that I do and I start worrying because I know exactly where that sinful tendency will lead to. Another way of thinking about this imitation is who do you look like? Like for any of you sitting around here, you can't help but, but be shaped to look like, to think like, to act at least similarly to your parents. So in the same way, spiritually, in, in your day-to-day -day life, does the way you are living 
imitate, look like God or not. Now, this imitation command is bracketed by two examples. The the forgiveness was last week's text, but then it goes on to uh, verse 2 and walk in love. We've seen that theme come up repeatedly throughout this book, in love. I think these might be the two most difficult traits for us as believers. Think of forgiveness. Jesus forgave literally everything. Every sin that I have committed, past, present, and off into the future. Yet I struggle forgiving my kids when they spill milk. And, and then in verse 2 here, in love, Jesus loved all of us such that when we were his enemies, like not, not friends, not neighbors, literally opposed to him with all that we had, that's when he loved us. I struggle to love people that are merely annoying. But let's think briefly about what this love looks like as well. In 1 John, we, have, we see a lot of commands about what love is supposed to look like. But I think one verse in particular ties into this passage in Ephesians really well. 1 John 3.18, where John commands us, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In the way we live and speaking the truth. How hard is that? We saw a couple weeks ago the command to speak the truth in love. Which means love must be visible in our lives. Otherwise, we are not being obedient to God's word. But Paul also goes on here in Ephesians. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. See, this love that we demonstrate is meant to be in the same way that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That first phrase, that fragrant offering, is actually a reference back to the Old Testament as a way of signifying that the offering that was given was acceptable. So Leviticus, everyone's favorite book to read. Haha, there you go. Micah, it is legitimately Micah's favorite book. The very beginning of Leviticus chapter 1, three times has this phrase. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. What this is signifying is because of Jesus' perfect and acceptable sacrifice, we can now offer our lives as a living sacrifice. That's where Paul will pick this, up, this idea up in Romans chapter 12, where he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Church, this is how we imitate God, by pursuing sacrifice. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We do that by not being conformed to this world. Instead, we are transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So similarly, so Paul goes on in Romans 12 to explain what this looks like. Don't be conformed, so don't imitate the world. Instead, be transformed, imitate God himself. Paul in Ephesians will actually go on to talk about what this transformation will look like. And here he talks about the need to walk in light. This section begins with the word, but. So Paul is contrasting. He begins with the command that we need to walk in love. Be imitators of God, but being imitators of God means there must be some things that are not true of us. Now, Paul will go on and talk about three groups of three here. A brief overview of the first three are referring to sexual sin. The second one talk about the way you speak. And the third one deals with idolatry. First three, sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness. The first word, uh, sexual immorality, is, is this uh, general word from the Greek that is, is uh, porneia, where we get the word pornography from. Uh, that word is used to refer to any kind of sexual sin that is outside the bounds of marriage. 
Now, with that said, this says sexual immorality. It must also be said that there is sexual morality. That is faithfulness to how God has designed and ordered human relationships to operate and flourish. Now, throughout history, there has been all sorts of deviation from God's intended purpose to sex. Like, our culture isn't even nearly close to as morally depraved as the first century was. The second word that he uses here is impurity. And this generally refers to a moral brokenness and often is used in the context of some kind of specific sexual sins. The third word is covetousness, which connects directly to the 10th commandment, where God commanded, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. What Paul is saying in this text, he goes on, must not even be named among you. Paul is saying that there shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality among believers. So this phrase, must not even be named, at first blush, you're like, we, we can't even talk about these things. That's not what, what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is that people on the outside, the world looking in at the church, shouldn't have any reason to bring up any of these charges against a believer. What this means is if you want to pursue holiness, if you want to imitate God and be like Christ, it demands that we fight against these sexual sins that have been issues since the fall. Now, if you grew up in the, the Christian news sphere, the time period that I grew up in, the, the 90s, has been under intense scrutiny for what is now known as the purity movement or the purity culture. If anyone has heard of the, of the group True Love's Weight, that was kind of one of the biggest manifestations of that. And, and a lot of these people had good desires and good motivations, but it was a, a terrible execution. I think the, the pinnacle, though, of this whole thing was a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. Um, who, who went recently, over, just over the past couple years, he went from writing this book to serving as a pastor of a huge megachurch in Maryland, and then just a couple years ago, he announced that he was divorcing his wife and no longer following Christ. Now, if we think about these things, the, the, the true love weights or the purity movement, the, there were good desires that people wanted to enforce in their children. So if you think back to the 60s, with the, the, the free love of, of the 60s led to a lot of hurt and pain in people. So out of a, a desire to try to protect their children, they did the best that they possibly could. But when the only message given is sex is bad, don't have sex, otherwise you'll get pregnant and have a terrible marriage, it leads to a whole host of difficulties. I think combined into that was an unwillingness for the church to prophetically speak out to and engage what it means to think about and pursue healthy sex. You throw those two things together and it's no wonder that our world is confused about God's point and purpose for sex. Now, with that said, if you have sexual sin in your background or if you are currently struggling with any kind of sexual sin, whether that's pornography, whether that is same-sex attraction, whether that is opposite-sex attraction, which is called lust, drag it out into the light. Share your struggles with someone who loves you and cares about you. And if you don't have anyone like that, then I'd invite you to get more involved and invested here because this is literally why God has given us the church. Now, we'll be talking more about this issue in a couple weeks when we get to marriage, but don't let today pass by without bringing your sin into the light so that we, as Christ's holy bride, will have not even a hint of sexual sin in our midst. Well, similarly, Paul goes on here and talks about the next three sins related to how you, how you talk in verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Now, some of these words, again, actually refer to specific sexual sins or joking about sex again. And why is it that language matters so much? Because Jesus said that if you want to measure how well you're growing in your sanctification, look at the words that are coming out of your mouth. 
So in Luke 6.45, it said, The good person out of the good treasures of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, at first blush, just reading through this, like, let there be no filthiness, nor foolishness, nor crude joking, you may start thinking, what place does humor have? Like, like me, you may enjoy uh, listening to and laughing along with comedians. You may like a, a perfectly timed joke or, or listening to funny stories. Is that what Paul is talking about here? Thankfully, no. Because as you read through the Bible, even the Bible has some really funny stories and situations. I don't have time for it, but ask me about Ehud sometime in the Judges. He's called the Southpaw Assassin. Even as you read through uh, the, the Gospels, Jesus told jokes. In one case, he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. How effective are whitewashed tombs? Not very, but it's a really funny joke. Later on, he accuses them of, of like uh, of filtering their drink, and they strained out a gnat, but let the camel slide through the filter. That's funny. He also said that it's easier for a rich person to get to heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Like, think of if I was holding a needle up here and I had a camel standing behind me. That's funny. Jesus told a lot of jokes. But jokes have a time and a place. And making a joke at the expense of another human is belittling and dehumanizing to them. This also tells us that there are some situations and places about which we shouldn't joke. One of the things that I've been contemplating recently as I've been uh, reading repeatedly through Ephesians for this series is using sex as a joke. Because sex is meant to be a beautiful picture of the union of the Godhead. But because we don't like to talk about it or because it makes us uncomfortable, we have a tendency to turn it into a laugh. It's also easy to use a timely jab to alleviate tension or just to get a laugh, but that is not how God has called us to live. Think of one of the verses uh, Micah preached on last week, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, none, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So brothers and sisters, even in your joking, you should find ways you can use a joke to give grace. And when, not if, you offend, be quick to apologize and seek reconciliation. But notice, Paul goes on here. So no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Does that feel weird to anyone else? What does thanksgiving have to do with, with not having crude joking? Well, what this means is corrupting talk comes about because we are not grateful for all the ways God has provided for us. Instead, we lower ourselves, we dehumanize other people, we, we speak poorly of them. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful quote about this, like the, the ways that we so often exchange the things that God has called us to for, for half-hearted things. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Now, all these things that God has given to us are good gifts. But instead, what we tend to do is use our words, use the gifts that God has given to us to either tear people down or revel in our sin. So even when we use our words, what we should do is use them to give praise and thanksgiving for the immeasurable ways that he has blessed you. Now, back in Ephesians verse 5, Paul doubles down on what he mentioned in the first verse. He says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, so again, verse 3 there, or impure, tying up to here, or who is covetous, tying up to here, that is an idolater. Now, one thing that is important to note here that I've shared before, Ephesus had many cultic influences. So Ephesus was the home of one of the ancient wonders of the world, the ancient temple to the god Artemis, who was the fertility god. 
So believe it or not, our culture is not the first culture to turn sex into a god. People today are tempted by the exact same sins. It just takes a different name today. But now what do you think the the, the connection here uh, between covetous and idolatry is? Well, what this is saying is, is we covet when we either don't like what we have or we want more than what we need. I was having a conversation with some guys last week about how much is enough. Do you guys know the answer? Just a little more. Did you know that a survey uh, that Princeton, I believe it was Princeton, did, uh, demonstrated that happiness is directly correlated to your annual salary, but only up to $75,000? From there on out, there's much less correlation. Now, what is it about $75,000? Well, it's solidly middle class. <laughs> it's enough to provide for your needs. It's enough to set up an emergency fund and not be stressed about your next meal. But from there on out, it is a diminishing return on how much money correlates to your happiness. Solidly having everything that you need, not what you want. Now, he goes on and says, those who have lived these, these things out, those who do not kill these sins, have no inheritance in God's kingdom. Now, remember the big deal that Paul made in Ephesians 1 about the fact that we, as, as Christians, are adopted. And since we are adopted, we have all the rights and the privileges of being children of God. But notice here that those rights and privileges are dependent on us looking like our dad, on us representing him to the rest of his creation. But all of us fall short of that standard, don't we? What hope do we actually have of imitating God the way we're supposed to? Thankfully, that's where along with adoption comes the fact that we are now in Christ. So it's no longer about us perfectly measuring up to God's standard because Jesus already did. And now, if you are in Christ, when God looks at you, instead of seeing you, he sees Jesus standing in your place. However, we have to acknowledge that there are also going to be people that, until Christ comes back, who will either downplay the severity of what God is saying here, or will add additional rules and stipulations onto what Christ has already accomplished. That's what he goes on to say in verse 6 here. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Empty words. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Like a bag of hot air, just useless. So in context, this is referring to someone who who is downplaying any severity of sin or is lowering God's perfect standard. Now, let's think back to the first time someone questioned the validity of God's standard. Genesis 3, the serpent in the very beginning, begin by asking, did God really say? That is the epitome of empty words. And even looking at the way he was tempted, it, it remains true of temptation today. First, she looks... Then she notices that it looks delightful. Then she desires it. And then she takes it. That's a summary of every sin you commit. You look at it. It looks delightful. It looks desirable. So you go and you finally take it. Now, there is increasing pressure in our culture today to cave into these empty words. I see things like like people responding with anger to someone that would disagree with you. Uh, I see someone explaining that it's time to move away from gentle answers. Or I've even seen pastors accused of being woke for tweeting a Bible verse. Or even the other extreme, maybe, where where someone is is downplaying the reality and effects of sin. Remember, we just saw in, in the beginning verses here how destructive sexual sin is. What we see here is if you want to live life to the fullest, be obedient to God. Because otherwise, you will be under the wrath of God. You will be a son of disobedience. Now, sometimes that means that that there will be implications for your sin on on this side of heaven. But I can guarantee whether or not you experience implications here, 
In heaven, there will be implications for it, which is why you are still alive today, which is why God gives us each new day as an opportunity to rededicate, to refocus our lives to him, and why we have the reminder throughout scripture that his mercies are new every morning. So even if you do give in to the empty words, don't run away from God, his grace is still enough. But Paul goes on here and and verse 7. So all these things, these nine things we are not supposed to do. Therefore, verse 7, do not become partners with them. How do we obey something like this, yet still obey the Great Commission to go out into the entire world and make disciples? We need to remember that we are both in but not of the world. So when we are spending time with people who are not believers, we should be living our lives in such a way that we don't live the same way they do. We don't have the same motivating force driving us. We are living today as citizens of heaven. What that means is we live a normal human life, but we don't participate or revel in or celebrate sin the same way that the unbelievers that we are spending time with will. Now, that being said, in your evangelism, don't use that for an excuse to sin either. If you are an alcoholic, I would not recommend going to the local brewery as an attempt to witness to others. If you struggle with the sin of materialism, maybe don't go to the mall trying to reach out to some of your friends. However, don't waste the unique ways God has equipped and gifted you to evangelize. Brothers and sisters, your house isn't yours. God has placed you there to be a light shining in the neighborhood. Your job was given to you for a reason and a purpose, for you to be evangelistic in your work. So don't hide your light. Don't extinguish your light. Shine brightly. And look for opportunities to share the gospel in what you say and in how you live. But Paul goes on and reminds us that this was true of us, these these sinful tendencies. For at one time in the past, you were darkness. However, now you are light in the Lord. You were darkness, now you are light. Now if you are light, what that means is we actually carry the light with us wherever we go which means we have to go into the darkness and bring the light into it. So if we are in the light, the fruit that will come out of us being in the light is the opposite of the nine descriptions Paul laid out at the beginning. Now, when you hear the word nine associated with the word fruit, you should be thinking of a different passages of Paul where he talks about nine different fruit that are good. That is Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. There he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those nine fruit will never fail. They will never rot. They will never go out of style. And if you actually live and put those things into practice, your life will be radically different than the way the world wants you to operate. As I've shared before, the piece that keeps just rattling around in my head from that fruit of the Spirit is the word gentleness. Where is it that you see gentleness in our world today? So you should be seeing it from those who claim Christ. If you're not gentle, are you actually walking in the light? See, the fruit of the Spirit is is the way that we can now please the Lord. So by living a fruit-filled life, we will, by our conduct, expose the unfruitful works of the darkness. So verse 9 here, he says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good. And then go on, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Pleasing to the Lord. That's how we do it, is we live out the fruit of the Spirit. Now, one of the pieces we need to be aware of as children of the light is we individually need to bring our sins and struggles into the light and share our struggles with other believers. In James 5, James actually commands us to confess our sin to each other. That is to bring light, to shine light into the darkness of our sins. 
One thing this means, and I've been talking to a few people about this regularly, is we must be willing to share every area of our lives with someone or someones. Now, it doesn't need to be the same person that you share everything to, but if you have an area in your life that no one else knows about, you are not truly known. You are not truly living in the light, and you are not trusting God's forgiveness for your sins. And one of the things that I've heard um, through most churches uh, in my life is it's okay to not be okay, which is true. It's okay to not be okay. None of us have fully arrived. None of us are fully there yet. But open yourself up to not just stay there. Don't just like wallow in self-pity of your not okayness. Be connected to other believers, which is called the church, who will love you despite your sins. So expose those dark areas of sin to the light. If you're in Christ, you don't have anything to fear. Like what will the judgment of humans do to you? We saw in Ephesians 2 that we are seated right now with Christ in heaven. What, what do we be afraid of, of what people have, have to say to us? Then going on to verse, verse 14. So 13 is what I just talked about. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This connects us back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul said, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Now, if we've been raised with Christ, Christ is now shining on us, he is shining in us, and he is shining through us, which means we now walk in wisdom. See, God has has given us wisdom through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in us, who illuminates his word to us to help us know how we should live. That's why we have to, as he says here, walk carefully. That is how we walk carefully. We start with God's word. We we understand and comprehend what God's word said, which allows us to then walk carefully. Now, my love for uh, reading came to fruition from paying attention to driving, believe it or not. Uh, The time where I finally started realizing I could actually read, we were driving down a, a street in Minot, North Dakota, and I commented to my mom, there are all sorts of no parking signs on the street. And she had no clue that I could read it. Like, similarly to driving, we, you need to know the rules in order to drive wisely. Well, similarly here, we need to know God and know what God has commanded us to do and be. The God who created and ordered everything that we see around us and then gave us rules that will lead us to human flourishing, which even ties us into the next verse, verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And what does it mean to make the best use of the time? And I think there's extremes that we have to avoid with this. On the one side is workaholism, where you just use the excuse that I'm making the best use of the time, and so you work all the time. You never take downtime. You never take breaks. Or the other side of that is you take too much downtime, and then you start having guilt for actually taking breaks. I think what we need to remember, and I've talked about this before, is there's a difference between doing and being. So God has called us to be certain people. He's called us to be his children. And then out of that, or out of the overflow of being, comes the doing. So if, if we are truly in Christ, if God is alive in us, if his spirit is at work within us, then we can live in specific ways. But if we flip that around, we're never going to actually arrive at being children of God. And the perf- person who, who exemplified making the best use of the time is Jesus, when he was on earth. Now, when he was on earth, he was limited by time and by space. So do you know what Jesus did really well? He slept really well, such that he could even sleep when when a storm was rocking a boat back and forth. You know what else he did really well? He would regularly withdraw from the crowds to get away and pray. He would regularly spend time at the synagogue, which was church. 
He would all the time spend time with his closest friends. You know what else Jesus did really well? He partied. He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he spent so much time eating and drinking with his, with his followers. So what does that mean for us? How do we make the best use of the time? What we do is we put God first and then use everything that he has given us as a tool to worship him. So eating is an opportunity for you to worship God. Drinking a glass of water, just like this. Sorry, I need a drink. It's an opportunity for us to worship God. Sleeping is an opportunity for us to worship God. Walking is an opportunity for us to worship God. Nothing is off limits to worshiping him. That is how we're not foolish. That is how we're not idolaters. And Paul lands with with what we should be doing instead of being foolish, instead of being idolaters, is understand what the will of the Lord is. There's a little book that came out when I was in college um, called uh, something about understanding God's will. I can't, I can't remember it right now. The subtitle is like, how to figure out God's will for your life without fleeces or signs or dreams or impressions or all these other things. And the, we have a tendency to treat the will of God as like the, this mysterious, unknown reality around us when what we have in Scripture is exactly what God has commanded us to follow His will. So in 1 Thessalonians 4.2, Paul reminds us, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, another way of translating that word sanctification is holiness. God wants you to be holy. And if you are pursuing holiness in, in all of your life, then live your life as a normal human being. And God will continue blessing you and working in you and forming you into his image day by day. But then practically, what does that look like in our lives? Paul talks about that one chapter later in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Now, this is difficult for us. We've seen from Ephesians to have not even a hint of sin. We see here, God's will for us is to rejoice always, to pray for everything, and then to be legitimately grateful people, no matter what our circumstances are telling us. But that's exactly what God allows and commands us to be. It's not work harder. It's not clean up your act. It's give up. It is die to yourself and allow God to actually work in you. It's be a perfectly normal human being who has rightly ordered your life, who is shining as a light, which means demonstrating in increasing measure the fruit of the Spirit, and then day by day becoming better imitators of our perfect Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me? God, I think of of what your followers said to you after you gave them some commands. These things are very difficult. Who can follow them? And so I pray for us as we seek to more faithfully walk in your footsteps, that you would, through the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit, bring to mind the truths that you have commanded us to do and be in your word. God, we confess that we are so often prone to give in to our our fleshly temptations, our fleshly impulses, the sin that so easily entangles us. I pray that we would cast those things off and instead run the race that you have set before us with endurance. Help us to keep our eyes on you and as we keep our eyes on you to become better imitations of you. I pray that we can encourage and edify each other to take more seriously the commands to put the sinful ways off and put on the things that you have called and commanded us to be as, as new creatures, as new people, as, as people who have been raised from death into life. God, I pray that love 
would, would overarch everything that we do, that the new ethic that we have would be rooted and built up in love, and that we can encourage and set an example for each other in, in the way we talk, in the way we live, in the way that we imitate and demonstrate you to the world. God, I thank you that because we are imperfect, uh, you sent your son to both set an example for us and be the perfect model in our place. God, we thank you for Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and, and the ability that that leads to for us to now walk in the newness of life. Pray that you would be honored and glorified, that we would be demonstrating faithfully to the best of our ability the fruit of the Spirit in increasing measure. I pray all these things in the saving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.